One of my favorite films is a movie called Castaway. And, and probably many of you have seen it. It is unique in many ways. It's a story about a FedEx um, executive who was flying to Malaysia to take care of some, some um, problems, do some troubleshooting. And his plane crashes, and he becomes the sole survivor of this plane going down over the ocean. He finds himself washed up on shore of a deserted island. And one of the fascinating things about this movie is probably about two-thirds of this movie is just focused in on this character. His name's Chuck Nolan, played brilliantly by Tom Hanks. I think there's something like 20 minutes of just nothing but silence as we watch him on the edge of our seat trying to figure out how to survive and, and to realize help isn't coming and, and what do you do next on that. And he, he does a brilliant job. But he's a star of the show, but there's also another star of the show that was in the form of a volleyball named Wilson. You remember Wilson? Wilson was this volleyball that washed up on shore, and Tom Hanks uh, took some blood from a cut of his and put a hand mark on Wilson and put a couple of eyes and named this volleyball Wilson, and this became his constant companion, and he had just long dialogues with this ball. And as a friend of mine said, normally if a person is having long, detailed conversations with a volleyball, we want to get some help for them, right? Uh, their sanity is in question. But as we watch this film, we know that that's not the case. <laughs> These long conversations with Wilson are actually a way for him to keep his sanity. And there's this one place where he, he attempts an escape from the island in this makeshift raft, and, and he becomes separated from Wilson, and, and the water's carrying Wilson away, and, and he, can't, he can't rescue him. And, and he just breaks down, sobbing, saying, Wilson, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. As he lays on that raft, we, we just feel so much sorrow with him because we know in one sense it's just a volleyball. But at the same time, that was his, his one, how do we put this, connection to sanity, right? And, and I think that's an interesting film because in, in many ways it helps us to understand this truth. You and I are made for community. We long to belong. We were meant to, to be known and to be in relationships of love. And when we have those, we can flourish as human beings. And when we don't have them, we actually begin to disintegrate. This summer, we're in a series called Life Together. And we're exploring a new way of being human together. We're, we're taking some of the teachings of the new commandments that were uttered by some of Jesus' uh, close friends and disciples and ambassadors charged with teaching people the teachings of Jesus. And so we're looking at some of these commands, asking ourselves the question, what does it mean to apprentice with Jesus in a new way of being human? And so we're going to spend this summer looking at a number of these one another commands. And as we we get our heads around them as we actually begin to put them in practice as we form communities of faith and following Jesus in which these kind of one another commands are actually fleshed out. This becomes something actually amazing and transformative. We saw last week as we began this series, this important truth. We are designed to flourish as a part of a true community where we are devoted to one another. We looked at the passage in the book of Acts after the death and resurrection of Jesus, in which Jesus launched both his message and his ministry into the world and entrusted that to a movement of people. And as people began to understand and discover how devoted God was to them, they became devoted to one another. We're told that the people who began to follow Jesus, 
devoted themselves to the fellowship or the community of Jesus. And we may note that that word fellowship simply means a shared life or life together. In other words, following Jesus isn't meant to be like a solo effort. We're meant to be in relationship with other people who are seeking to follow Jesus as well. And it takes on a, a certain kind of community. And we saw last week as well that this is really kind of transformative as well as challenging for people like you and me. Because our default mode should be we instead of me. Our default mode as people living in 21st century America is me. We think about ourselves first and foremost. We think about what we got to do today, meetings we got to attend to. And so we just tend to approach life from the vantage point of me. But as this new community of Jesus is formed post-resurrection, people are being added to the number. They devoted themselves to one another, and their default mode became we instead of me. And so we asked the question last week, what would it look like if this little community of Jesus was actually set to that default mode? What if our default mode was we instead of me? How would that change the way we thought about what it meant to follow Jesus? We're going to explore that a little bit more today in a study called Love One Another. And we're going to take this simple command, which many of us, I think, probably, I was thinking about setting this up for, for us this week. And I thought probably most of us are going to say, oh, we got this down. <laughs> yes, Jesus, we know we're supposed to love one another. Okay, next. What, what else? But before we get out the gate, we need to just camp out on this issue for a little bit. Because as loving as you all are, we have tons of room to grow. And we have so much room to put into practice this new way of being human with one another that each of us, no matter how well we think we've, we've captured this concept, can grow in, in many ways. And so we're going to look at the writings of one of Jesus' close friends. Uh, his name was John the Apostle. And he was kind of the inner circle of disciples that was especially close to Jesus. And so we're going to look at some verses from 1 John chapter 3 and also chapter 4. And so we're going to begin at chapter 3, verse 11. And this is how John tells these people how they should live in light of Jesus. He said in verse 11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now what's interesting about this, this is basically Christianity 101. If we don't get this, we don't get anything that Jesus taught. I think when he says here, you've heard from the beginning, that is from the beginning when they, when they dialed into what Jesus was saying, when they became followers of Jesus, this was Christianity 101. This is the new ethic that Jesus gave his followers to, to inhabit, to live by, to be known by. And Jesus actually injects into this world, world kind of a, a revolutionary kind of love. In a dog-eat-dog -dog world, he wants his followers to be different. So, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, he says this. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's, that's easy to do, right? <laughs> we can love the people that we like and the people we don't like. It's easy to dismiss them. But Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. For if, those who, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? In other words, in a... In a world that kind of lives by an ethic, if, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, Jesus says, big deal. Anybody can do that. If you're following in the way of life I'm teaching you, then I want you to love even those people that you, you can't love by yourself, that you have no natural abilities to do. 
And so then John says this in verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Now this is so important. Many of us, when we think that we are, are, are loving, we kind of define love in ways that are convenient for us, right? And John says, when Jesus calls us to love one another, this is actually how we know what the definition of love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. I mean, that's the extent to which he loved us and he cared for us. And if Jesus laid down his life for us, then that should change us and transform us so that we will begin to want to lay down our lives for one another. So he's addressing this community of followers of Jesus and says, look, if you understand that Jesus loved you and he gave himself for you, then the natural overgrowth of that, the natural overflow is going to be that you want to actually learn to love other people and to explore what it might be even for you to, to lay down your life for one another. Jesus said as much in the Gospel of John. On the night that he was arrested and betrayed, he's with his disciples giving them the last instructions he wants them to know before he is, is killed. And Jesus said this, A new command I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, I think this is brilliant on the part of Jesus. In many ways, you could say the command to love one another is not new at all. I mean, that goes all the way back in the history of the Jewish people to Moses, who said we're to love God with everything we've got and to love our neighbor as ourselves. But Jesus says, look, I'm giving you a new command that you should love one another, but I'm not leaving that up for you and me to define. He doesn't leave that up to you and me to define, but he shows us what it looks like. Just as I have loved you, so also are you to love one another. Now think about this. How did Jesus love us? It wasn't passive. It was an active kind of love. He, he moved toward us in, in the mess of our lives, and he was willing to go to whatever extreme it's necessary to serve us, to, to save us. And Jesus loved like that so that we can learn to love like that as well. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, the apostle says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Stop and think about what he's saying here. God himself is love, and if you say that you, in any sense, love God, then that should work itself out in the fact that you love others. Because love is from God, who is love. And to know God is, is to love him and to experience him. So he says in verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Let me say that again. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. You want to know how God loves us? God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, this is an interesting word. I imagine if I was a betting man, I'd probably bet almost everything that none of you used the word propitiation this last week <laughs> or probably even this last month or maybe even this last year or even in your whole life. This is... Uh, 
we do, let's geek out just for just a moment, okay? Let, let's think about this for a moment. This word propitiation is a fancy legal term that means to satisfy justice. And used in this context, God sent Jesus into the world to be a propitiation for our sins. That is to, to satisfy the demands of justice. Now let's think about this for just a moment. If we understand, if we're tracking with what the Bible teaches, when it says that our sins, those things that we do, which live contrary to the way God designed us to live, that are failures of love, these things are a moral debt. This is, this is what we, we owe one another. And so when, when we fail to love, we're racking up that debt. And that debt is a debt that needs to be paid in some way. And so what God did was he sent his son Jesus into the world to be a propitiation for our sins. That is to satisfy God's justice for our sins. And sometimes people will ask the question, well, why can't God just forgive? Why does Jesus need to, to die, of all things, in the place of people like us? Well, think about this for a moment. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. What you and I earn, so to speak, what we get paid is death. That's, that's contrary to the life of God. If we want to pursue our own will, to live by our own, that, that leads in destructive ways towards death. And so God has to, in some way, ensure that justice takes place. If you were to, if you were to go to, before a judge and you know this terrible crime had been committed and you're there witnessing the trial and it's proven positive that this person was guilty, there's no doubt about it. This cameras, he, he did the crime. And if the judge at the end said, you know what? You do some other good things in your life. I'm, I'm just going to let you go on this. We would, we would be outraged, right? That would be actually a miscarriage of justice. And so what, what God did in sending forth Jesus to be the sin bearer for us, and Jesus willingly took up that role so that our sins can be condemned in his flesh, this allows God to do something very interesting. This is the way the Apostle Paul puts it. By the way, we're still geeking out a little bit, so stay with me on this. He says in the book of Romans, we are justified by his grace as a gift. That is, we are declared not guilty and in the right. So God declares us not guilty and in the right as a gift of his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. There's that word again whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In other words, God doesn't require us to pay for our own sins. He put forward his son, and we simply receive what his son has done for us. And then the Apostle Paul says this, God did this to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because of what Jesus did for us, God can remain just and also justify. So going back to this word propitiation, it allows two things to happen. It allows God to be God, a God of justice, who doesn't miscarry justice. And it allows God to justify those who trust in Jesus. And this is, this is important for understanding the love of God. This is, this is the link that God was willing to go and Jesus, his son, was willing to go to bring people like you and me back into relationship with him. And so that's why the Apostle Paul penned these words in his, I'm sorry, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, 
in the gospel of John penned these words. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. Now, this is probably the most famous verse in the Bible. Sometimes you'll see it up on cards at sporting events and and things like that. This is the most important verse in the Bible, most people would say. And John says, look, this is how God has loved us. He sent forth his son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. This kind of love, my friends, is meant to grab hold of us and to transform us. J.I. Packer, in his classic work, Knowing God, said, There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can now disillusion him about me in the way I'm so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. This is one of my favorite quotes in a book outside the Bible that I have read. He tells us here, There's tremendous relief that comes with the gospel in knowing that God's love to us is utterly realistic. It's not theoretical. It's not just a nice idea. It's utterly realistic because of what Jesus has done for us. And it's based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about us. What we've done in the past, what we've done in the present, what we might do in the future. His love for us is not based on that, but rather It's love knowing that. And so God can't be disillusioned with us because his love for us is not conditioned on how well we love. And so when we experience that, it begins to transform us. And so back to 1 John chapter 4, verse 11, the apostle here says, Beloved, if God has so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And there's the one another command. He uses the word ought. That that carries obligation. This is what you should do. If you are a follower of Jesus and you want to know how to live as a follower of Jesus, it gets very easy here. We love by loving one another. It's, It's that simple and it's that difficult. If God so loved us, my friends, we ought to love one another. And he says this in verse 12. This is, this is really fascinating. No one has ever seen God, he says. If we love one another, God abides or he lives in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And this is really interesting. He says, look, no one has ever seen God, but there's an interesting thing that happens. When, when we begin to put into practice the kind of love that Jesus loves us with, the kind of love that God himself loves us with, God, in a sense, becomes visible. In other words, people should be able to look at the way that we relate to one another and say there's something not just different, but maybe even supernatural about the way that they love one another. And when we do that, it says God's love is perfected in us. How can God, who loves perfectly, still need his love to be perfected? Uh, That word in the Greek simply means brought to its intended purpose or its intended end. God loves us so that his love might be perfected in us in the way that we love one another. Do you see the connection there? 
If God loves us, we ought to love one another. And when we love one another, God's love is actually completing its purposes of transforming us into the disciples of Jesus. And so we can put it this way. This is how the unseen God is seen, namely in the way that we love one another. Now, let me just say, my friends, this is, this is so challenging and so jaw-droppingly, stunningly difficult to achieve. What the Apostle John, who spent three years as Jesus' best friend, and disciple, and now apostle, is saying, look, we are called to love one another in such a way that it's simply supernatural. That God himself actually becomes seen in the way that we treat one another. That, my friends, if it gets a hold of us, it will change us, and we can never be the same. We can never think about a community of faith the same. We can never do church the same. We can never follow Jesus in the same way. Because this stretches us beyond any abilities we have in ourselves. Chapter 4, verse 14, the apostle Paul continues. He says, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. What, a, what an amazing phrase this is. Jesus, the Savior of the world. That ought to take our breath away. To think that God has sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. This, in many ways, is the scandalous message of Jesus. It was scandalous in the first century, and it's scandalous in our time as well. If you ask people living in the first century when this was written, who was the Savior of the world? Who was the Son of God? People in the Roman Empire would have said, well, that's easy. That's, that's Caesar. At the time of Jesus, Caesar Augustus claimed to be the savior of the world. He had his father deified, and so he became the son of God. And so for the first century Christians to go around and saying, uh, no, actually Jesus is the true son of God. Jesus is the savior of the world. If you say that in the wrong place and at the wrong time, you get yourself in trouble. And there's this fascinating account in the book of Acts where just such a thing has happened. The apostles will go around teaching people about Jesus, the Savior of the world, how he's come back from the dead and now calls everyone to, to faith and repentance in him. Uh, there, there's this crazy thing that happens. People in this one particular city formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. Jason was a, a person who had welcomed these disciples of Jesus who was proclaiming this message. So they went and formed a mob, attacked his house, and they dragged Jason and some of the brothers, meaning other Christians, before the city authorities, and they were shouting this. These men who turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus so in the first century context, to be able to say Jesus himself is the Savior of the world, he is the true Son of God, meant that all others who had that claim were pretenders. They were a parody of what God intended. And so that's a fascinating thing to see worked out there. These Roman emperors established their empires. Their, their, their saving took on brute force. 
And it's interesting, someone as far removed from that first century world as Napoleon Bonaparte said this. He says, I know men. And I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire on love, upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. See, my friends, Jesus injected into this world a revolutionary kind of love that caused people to experience the love of God as it's been poured out for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's why Christians don't or shouldn't ever try to get someone to believe in Jesus upon threat of force. That's contrary to love. Rather, simply an invitation. It's an announcement that there is a true king. His name is Jesus. He's the savior of the world. And if you come to believe in him, to entrust your life to him, he gives you eternal life. And the wells of God's love are now open for you to begin to experience. And so John says in chapter four, verse 16, so we have come to know God and to believe the love that God has for us. Let me just pause there for a second. Can you say that about yourself? Have you come to a point in your own life where you've understood the message of Jesus? That God so loved this world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Have you come to know not just an idea that God is love but to actually know in a deep experiential way that God himself is love? He says, so we have come to know God, one, and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because he, <laughs> this is a tricky phrase, because as he is, so also are we in this world. As God is, and John just told us, God is love, so those of us who follow Jesus are love in this world. Do you see the connection? And that love manifests itself to basically whomever we come across. But John is driving home that the community of faith that's gathered around the message of Jesus should become an epicenter of love. There should be epicenters of love all over the place where people gather together around Jesus. And my friends, this is why you and I know it's such a travesty when people who, who claim to know God and to love him, who claim to be followers of Jesus, are mean and unloving. And if that's been your experience, I just want to say I'm sorry. I, I, I wish it wasn't that way with some people. I, I just know that some people, they, they get around this idea of God as love, and somehow in their own mind it gets processed into a reason not to love other people. And that's not the way it's supposed to work. If God is love and we experience that love through Jesus, then that changes and transforms everything about us. My friends, let me just challenge you. If, if, you, if you're not a believer in Jesus, uh, just listen in for a second. I'm, I'm going to speak directly to those who are believers in Jesus. My friends, if you are a believer in Jesus, other people ought to look at you and say, that is one of the most loving people I know. We can't excuse ourselves and go, well, this is just the way I am. No. That's not, it may be the way you are, but that's not the way you're called to be. And that can't be an excuse to stay in, in meanness. 
If you're a follower of Jesus, other people ought to look at us and get an idea of God's love because of the way that we love other people. Bottom line. That's why Packer, in his book, Knowing God, has this other fascinating quote. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of, God, of being God's child and of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Packer seems to be tipping his hat there to say, look, there's a lot of people who can claim to be Christians and followers of Jesus, but they, they don't understand the deep, deep love of God that's been given to them in Jesus. And so John bottom lines this for us in chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. That's the bottom line. The reason you and I can love. The reason you and I have an idea of what love should look like is because of the love that God has expressed to us in the person of Jesus. And we love one another because he first loved us. He goes on and, and really presses us in verse 20. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. That's strong language, my friends, isn't it? But maybe in some Christian communities where, for whatever reason, love doesn't reign, this needs to be shouted. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. John says that's impossible to happen. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And yes, this speaks in a general way to love we have for everyone, or ought to have for everyone. But speaking specifically to the kind of love that we ought to have one another as a community of faith, or if, you, or if you're visiting in a community of faith that, that you join together with to explore apprenticing with Jesus. And so here's, here's the main idea I have for us. We love one another this way because he first loved us this way. Christianity is a personal relationship with God through Jesus, but it can't be a private relationship because the way we're called to live puts us in relationship with others in which we apprentice with Jesus in a new way of being human. And this entails and this involves actually being in relationship with one another so that we can put into practice this calling to love one another. So my friends, just a couple points of application as we wrap this up. Number one, I want you to stir yourselves. <laughs> stir your longings for things to be different. And let me just ask you this question. Does love mark our community of faith? I'll speak to those of us who, who form this community of faith known as Mercy Hill Church. Is this the chief characteristic of our community of faith? that we have love for one another. I ask this question because in our culture, it's so easy to confuse love with being nice. And being nice really means you're not being mean to one another, right? Being nice is not the same thing as being loving. 
It's certainly an application of it. But look, you can be nice from a distance. It doesn't really require anything of you. My friends, is it, is it normal for us to have such low levels of love for one another? And I say that not to insult us, but if we're, if we're understanding what John the Apostle is trying to say, rather what I'm trying to do is to call us to live in light of that. If this is the way that God wants to display his unseen presence in the presence of us, then love has to mark our community. The kind of sacrificial, active, move towards one another kind of love that Jesus himself gave to us. Now, what if we were to get a report card on how well we're doing on this? Did you know that a group of Christians in Thessalonica kind of got this uh, back in the day? There's an interesting passage in a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote a group of Christians living in the ancient city of Thessalonica. And he said this, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need of anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. But we urge you, brothers, to do so, to do this more and more. <laughs> do you see what he's saying? He's like, okay, I'm an apostle. I teach people how to follow Jesus. One of the things I encourage them to do is to love one another. But as I think about these followers of Jesus in this city called Thessalonica, man, they're nailing it. <laughs> I, re- I usually write at this point in my letters, you guys need to exercise love towards one another. But you guys have been taught by God to love one another. I really don't have anything else to say, but keep going. Do this more and more. You guys are getting the reason why Jesus has pulled you together as a community of faith so that you can apprentice with Jesus in a new way of being human, one that's marked primarily by its love for one another. My friends, wouldn't it be amazing if the Apostle Paul could write this kind of report card for us? What if he were to come visit us on a Sunday morning or, or especially when we get together in our life groups throughout the week? And he would just kind of stand back and observe the way we are towards one another. Would he be able to go back home and write a a letter to us and go, hey, you guys have nailed it. (laughs) I wanted to tell you guys to love one another, but when I was in your presence, that's what happened. The love of God overflowed you in such a way that you guys have nailed it. So my friends, I want to call us to stir our longings for things to be different, for us to, to move in this direction for those ways in which we love one another well, to keep doing that more and more. And for those ways we need to grow, let's grow in that direction. In order for us to do that, we need to, here's the second point of application, courageously diagnose the problem. At the heart of the problem is a problem of our heart. The reason why we're reluctant to move in this direction, why it might, if we're honest, to admit it actually scares us, to to move in this direction is because if we're honest, we love ourselves the most. And and that gets in the way. Our default mode is me instead of we. And if the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart, then we need our hearts to be transformed so that it begins to love like Jesus does. There's an interesting uh, command by the Apostle Peter. He's writing a group of Christians as well who are living in midst of persecution. And he talks to them about how, how their hearts have been changed because of their obedience to Jesus. And he gives them this command. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, he could just say love one another and we might think, oh, we got this. 
but he says, love one another earnestly. What does that look like? This word in the Greek was used of racehorses that would strain to get their nose in front of the other horse at the finish line. How they raced earnestly and put everything they've got into it to cross that finish line. But it was also used, the same word earnestly was used of Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it said he prayed more earnestly. He was so intent in his prayers before the Lord that his blood pressure rose to such a level. My medical doctors may have to correct me on this. But this this, uh, um, condition called hemotidrosis happened in which capillaries began to sweat blood. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Paul's saying, look, if you understand the love of Jesus, this is how you're transformed, where you begin to love one another earnestly. Number three, here's the final point of application. Participate in the dress rehearsal. What do I mean by that? A dress rehearsal is a practice run-through ahead of the live performance. It's something that you do to make sure that you're ready for when that time comes and the curtains are pulled back, you step up and you deliver. And if we understand what Jesus is calling us to do, he says, look, there's a time coming when the kingdom of God will come and change and transform this world so that the only words we can use for it are a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. And what happens in that kingdom of God is that love reigns supreme. There's nothing there but love. And so in a sense, we are called to live the life of the future now in the present. Jonathan Edwards, early New England minister, put it like this. He said in a, in a sermon, I actually try to read this sermon of his um, about three or four times a year. It's that challenging and impactful. But he says, in the paradise of love, everything is filled with love. And everything conspires to promote and kindle it and keep up its flame. And nothing ever interrupts it. He says, you want to know what life in the coming kingdom of God is like? Everything conspires to promote love. Everywhere you look, there's examples of love. There's no gossip. There's no envy. There's no jealousy. But just the love that loves to see one another flourish as human beings. That's what's coming in the future. And so, my friends, what if? What if you and I, in the way that we are with one another, Live the life of the future now in the present. What if one of the reasons God has called us into existence as a community of faith is so that we can actually apprentice with Jesus in being this kind of a human being, one that loves deeply with one another? What if that's one of the primary purposes God has brought you in some kind of connection here so that you might learn to grow in implementing a radical kind of love with one another? My friends, that's what we need to move towards. That's the kind of life together that you and I are called to inhabit. So my friends, final word here. Leave your mark on the world this week. You have heard what it means to follow Jesus. It's to believe in his good news of his perfect life, death, and resurrection, and how it reconciles us to God. And we begin to experience the love of God, and it overflows in our life. And so it's intended to overflow in your life this week. So what is something that you can do this week to put into practice 
this call to love one another. My friends, let us not love in thoughts and in words only, but in deeds as well. Let us be doers of this word.